the message of dieting or weight loss as empowerment is one that um, really burns me up. And it's, you know, again, it's, it's um, there are a lot of diet and weight loss companies that have co-opted the use of activist language or empowerment language to sell their product. And dieting is actually one of the most disempowering things that you can do because the whole process involves you giving over control to someone else. Someone else dictates what you should eat and how you should exercise and how long you should exercise and how much you should eat. And so you aren't really empowered and somehow they're able to flip that script and tell you, this will make you feel empowered as a woman and and it's it's very manipulative language um it's just it's so manipulative that was melissa toller and you're listening to real talk radio with nicole antoinette episode 121 welcome to real talk radio with nicole antoinette that's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Can I take a quick minute to say some mushy thank you stuff? Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose life experiences and opinions might be different from your own. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people to find us. So thank you so much for taking a second and doing that. And thank you, of course, for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before. I have such a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I want to just take a second to explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple and powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. So if that's what you're looking for, sorry, I don't have all of the capital A answers. Um, As a recovering self-help junkie, I'm actually pretty over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too, and that that's why you're here. So yeah, that's not what this show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that women's voices deserve to be heard, and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. 
This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for new Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Melissa Toller. Melissa is a speaker, writer, and educator. Her work encourages people to make the connection between our culture's oppressive beauty standards and our personal struggle with self-acceptance. She's written extensively on diet culture and the toll it takes on our lives and humanity. Melissa also has a background as a pharmacist and certified wellness coach. Her goal is to help people unlearn harmful messages and behaviors from years of chronic dieting through writing and truth-telling. In this episode, Melissa talks about her 25-year history with dieting and why and how she finally stepped away from it. She shares how deeply entrenched we are in diet culture and why dieting is dehumanizing and disempowering. Her perspective isn't a critique of individual people who choose to lose weight, but is instead a much-needed criticism of the system and culture that convinces us that weight loss is a requirement for a healthy, happy, and full life. We talk about the superficiality of the wellness industry, the often misguided cultural obsession with health, and the need to look beyond diet and exercise if we're truly invested in improving the lives of every person in our society. Melissa also shares her favorite body-positive podcasts, as well as some great leaders and activists for us to follow on social media. I love Melissa's work, and I'm so excited for you to get to know her better through this conversation. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for so long. I love your work, and I'm very happy to have you here. Oh, I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to get into it. I know, right? There's today. I was like, "How do I even <laughs> choose?" Like, you have a limited amount of time, so I will. I will do my best to pull it together and fit as much as we can into this time block. Um, tell me something that you are totally obsessed with right now. Oh wow! Let's see. You know, I. Um... <laughs> This is going to sound so ridiculous. That's a great laugh. I love wherever this is going. I'm already here for it. (laughs) I love watching um, like crime dramas. So like I I loved Law and Order. I still do. But I also love like light comedy, like crime stories. So I don't know if you know the show Monk that used to come on in, I think it ended maybe 10 years ago yeah, or sure. Psych. I, these are, I'm a huge these, Psych fan. I love Psych. Oh, so yes. Yeah, so, okay. So now I feel um, more comfortable saying that I have been watching Psych every day. Um, like before I go to bed, old episodes of Psych. And laughing my ass off. So that's what I'm doing these days. It's so good. Did you watch, they had um, a psych movie come out around the holidays? I didn't. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's everything you would want from, <laughs> it's, it's, I love psych. It's funny, I don't watch or read or listen to anything that's 
scary or sort of too like emotionally disturbing, like Law and Order SVU. That's not for me. Things that will make me afraid to be home alone. Like that's not. Yes. And so Psych is perfect because there were a couple of episodes that got under my skin a little bit. Usually they're Halloween episodes. It's like a little too scary, but the rest of it, it's light enough and silly enough. And I love Dulé Hill. So yes, yes. It's so light and fluffy and like you can't really take a whole lot of it seriously. (laughs) It's just so much fun. I I love it. it. That's hilarious. So drop me into your real life. How did you spend the first hour of your day today? Oh, so I woke up um, way too early. I went to bed at 11, like probably after 11, because what? I was watching Psych. And (laughs) I woke up at 3.59. And I was like, Melissa, this is way too early. So I ended up just lying in bed trying to go back to sleep. That was how I spent the first hour, my first waking hour, trying to go back to sleep. (laughs) And what about your first out-of-bed hour? What does that look like? So my first out-of-bed hour today was um, getting ready to drive up um, from my home in D.C. up to the Philadelphia area to visit my family. And so, um, you know, I don't really have any morning rituals, which I would love if I did. You know, I have this big plan to write in the morning and work out and have coffee before I do anything, but that doesn't happen. So today it was sort of a, a rush and get myself ready to, yeah. to get on the road. I hear you. I have tried, I feel like for years to put together an awesome morning routine and somehow I'm always like on Instagram. <laughs> oh, <sad. laughs> oh yeah. That's another problem. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Um, so I'm excited to talk a lot about your work. Obviously that's how I found you. So when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you describe it? Mm. So, you know, I do sometimes have difficulty with that because I used to be a wellness coach, a health and wellness coach for uh, maybe three years. And and we'll probably may get into why I'm no longer a wellness coach. <clears throat> but I now I guess I consider myself a writer, a speaker and an educator. And I really tell people that uh, all of my work is about helping um, folks unlearn the harmful messages that we've learned about ourselves and our bodies. I like explore um, issues around body acceptance and diet culture and race and how all those things come together. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I need to probably work on that, <laughs> but it comes <laughs> out, it comes out different, um, you know, every time, but I, I, at my core, I know what the work is. You know, it's sometimes figuring out how to say it in a way that people will understand. Mm -hmm, Totally. Yeah. I mean, anytime you do something that's slightly not the traditional mainstream, that's always a struggle to figure out how you explain it. And I feel like it's different depending upon who you're talking to, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Actually, so will you tell that story of um, how you got out of wellness coaching? Sure. So I, um, so I'm a pharmacist also by training. I became a licensed pharmacist in 1996, I believe. And so, you know, worked in corporate America for a long time, left my job, um, my full-time job in the, at the end of 2014 to pursue my business, my health and wellness coaching business. I got a, I was certified in health and wellness coaching. I was excited. And, um, I, was I, I sold weight loss. So it wasn't, so yes, I sold weight loss. Like that was the main reason that people came to me. My approach though was like a non-diet and I'm using bunny ears, a non-diet weight management approach. 
And so I did that for maybe two years. And then, you know, over time, as I became connected to different people on social media and listening to different podcasts, something just didn't sit right with me with regard to selling weight loss anymore. And, um, so I wrote this long piece about it. Um, I think in 2016 that I, the reason I stopped selling it. And so that was sort of the, the beginning of the end of my career as a health and wellness coach. And then, so we fast forward several months later and I, um, you know, as I started to get more into, social justice issues and learn about a lot of the inequalities in my country, in the United States. Um, and I realized that the traditional health and wellness paradigm, the health and wellness community didn't really talk about those things, right? We never talked about, um, people having adequate access, adequate, affordable access to healthcare or housing or issues around racism and sexism. And those are all things that affect a person's health and wellness. But when you look at traditional health and wellness stuff, it looks a lot like diet culture. It looks a lot like selling weight loss. And so I wrote this piece um, that I think it was, it does the health and wellness community really care about health and wellness. And that was sort of my, my exit from health and wellness. I I sort of declared that this is why I'm walking away from it. And so from that point, so that was maybe a year or so ago, I've just been really writing. I went back to corporate America and, um, writing on the side, writing my blog and teaching and speaking whenever I can. Mm -hmm. So that's that in a nutshell. Yeah, I love it. So, I mean, as we're going to dig deeper into these topics, can you define what you mean when you use the words dieting and diet culture? Whew, yes. So (laughs) dieting, the way I define it, it, um, is that anything that we do to control the size and weight of our bodies, usually through restricting calories or food groups, which is ultimately a restriction of calories, uh, or and or um, exercising to almost excess. Like when you're in t- not when the majority of your time and effort and mental energy is spent on either thinking about food, thinking about losing weight, or trying to lose weight, is what I mean by dieting and. You know, sometimes you still have to define it or be very specific about it because it's so ingrained in our culture, which is why we live in a diet culture. Our culture is fixated on fixing fat people. We're fixated on being thin and quote unquote healthy and using those two words interchangeably. We're we're fix on fixated on eating only or primarily good food and avoiding bad food. And it's like we just, we're always, we're supposed to prioritize being thin and healthy. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of what our diet culture is about. It's also about a hierarchy of bodies, right? We put a lot of worth on um, thin bodies and uh, classify bodies that 
aren't thin, classify them as healthy, as harmful, as dangerous as a whole lot of other things as well. And so sometimes you have to be really specific about what dieting is because because it's so entrenched in our culture, people don't think what they're doing is really dieting. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, I'm just, I just have a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much here. I, I've been thinking about this lately, this idea that I think dieting has become sort of a less socially accepted word or idea, uh, maybe not across the board, but like in light of that, I feel like the weight loss industry and this diet culture that you're talking about almost seems to have just then like packaged it differently, like with words like clean eating, which is definitely something that I got caught up in myself like five years ago-ish and took a lot of sort of unlearning of that. But I'm interested to hear what you think or where you've seen shifts like that happening, like ways in which we're still sold what is dieting without calling it dieting? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like um, diet marketers know, you know, we they they know that we don't want to diet, so they just change the packaging to something else. And I think the greatest example that everybody can probably relate to is Weight Watchers, right? It's not sold as a diet. They have Oprah saying it's not a diet. They have you know, when it, when she first took over and I love Oprah, but when she first took over, if you remember her commercials about, I can eat bread and, you know, just all of this stuff about being healthy and well. And sometimes, and and there have been instances that where their Weight Watchers has co-opted, um, like body positivity language as well. So they're a great example of an, a company and organization that is still a diet. The name is still Weight Watchers. There's still a scale at the meetings. And you're still restricted to certain points, even though they've started a new program that's supposed to let you eat 200 new foods with zero points. Like that, Weight Watchers is the perfect example of something that is a diet trying to convince you that it's not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that you're so right about this is so prevalent and has been for so long. And uh, I know it's not a completely gendered thing, but I think it's safe to say, especially for women, that it's like when something's so entrenched, it can almost feel like overwhelming and impossible to start to step outside of it. Yes, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I talk a lot about how uh, you know, people who are walking away from diet culture or opting out, as I like to say, you know, we're all at different stages of that. And sometimes I think in body acceptance and body positivity circles, it can seem like, you know, you decide on Monday that you're going to stop dieting and like t- on Tuesday, everything is cool and you're free and, and, and doesn't really work like that for the majority of people. You know, we have been entrenched in diet culture and actively participating in it, discussing it and being in community with other people, but primarily women around diet culture that, you know, it takes a lot of time to deprogram yourself, deprogram your mind and even your body from, from those messages and those images for 
decades of your life. It's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to walk away from. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's always difficult when you decide to step outside of whatever the mainstream thing is, right? Whether it's this or oh, something yes. else. It's like, we want it to be, I've just decided and now I'm done. But it's funny, it's once you make the decision that you start to realize how deep the claws are in you <laughs> of this thing. Yes, yeah. yes. So one of the things that I know that you write and teach about often is how dieting and diet culture are dehumanizing. And I don't know that I've ever heard anyone talk about it quite in that way. So I would love to get into that and for you to share sort of more about what you mean. Yeah, you know, last year, early last year, I had like this revelation. And it was something that was sort of brewing for a few months. And, you know, I, I write a lot. And um, I don't publish a lot, but I do write a lot and writing helps me to process things. And, you know, I had been thinking about dieting and how difficult it has been for me to walk away from it and how difficult I've seen other people, like the difficulty I've seen other women go through and walking away from it. And, And when I see people who are still in it and there would be like this sort of I don't even know how to describe. I had like a physical reaction to it. And and it, the the feeling that I got and the thought that came as a result of that feeling was like, you know what, this is a really serious thing. It's not just it's not just dieting isn't just this thing we do because we want to look good in a bikini or it's not just this thing we do because everyone else is doing it. It's and it has a significant impact on our lives. And so I, I sort of had this revelation over several months that it's actually very dehumanizing. And by that, like, I think it, it dishonors our humanity in a variety of ways. And some of the ways are like, it, it requires us to be perfect. It requires you to, to be good with food, to be perfect with your exercise routine, to be good with your shakes and whatever else. It it also ignores body diversity. You know, the whole goal is to get to a certain body size. There's like a, you know, there's this, a European standard of beauty that we're all supposed to be aspiring to and working hard to achieve. It totally disregards that bodies are all different shapes, sizes, and abilities. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it prevents us or discourages us from being messy, complicated as we are human beings. And, um, you know, when I had those, that revelation, I was like, man, this is, we have to really start talking about dieting more seriously. It's not a light and fluffy topic at all. Mm-hmm. It's funny, as you were just talking about that, about, you know, body diversity and this overarching goal of everyone trying to get to the same small size and body shape. It's like, if we were to think about that same thing in any other context, for example, an intellectual context, where if every single person was trying to get to, I don't know, some like high level of expertise in like mathematics or whatever. Yes, like I was going to say calculus. Right? Like, <laughs> first of all, I don't think that's possible because that's not everybody's yeah. skill set, right? And also how boring, like how many things would be missing if that was, if everyone's energy was just going into being excellent at calculus. And like, it sounds absurd in that example. And yet that's exactly what dieting, like if we're, if we're all trying to achieve, like you said, this like European, you know, thin, white, I did like, it's, oh God. Yeah. 
and it's absurd and it, 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 it sort of negates, it asks people to deny who they are. That's, that's the part that is so, um, oh, what's the word? It's, it's really, I think that that's really cruel to human beings to, to be, to add, to be asked to deny who you are and to be told either directly or indirectly through images and messages that you will be worthy once you achieve this, this certain body size or type. Mm -hmm. And until then your worthiness is sort of like really not there. (laughs) It's like contingent and it's contingent on the size of your body. And that's just a terrible, that's a terrible way to go through life. But that is a reality for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. I think the thing, and I don't know that it was like one moment, but that started to wake me up to like exactly this kind of stuff that we we're talking about now was this idea that I feel like the anytime or not anytime, oftentimes when this conversation comes up, I feel like the backlash or the pushback is always like, but health, but what about health? It's not healthy to be, you know, whatever people want to say about being fat or being whatever, you know, it's always, well, but health, but health, but health. And I started to think about like, it's, what do I want to say? That being if you achieve thinness, if that's not natural for your body, if you achieve thinness through unhealthy means, like that's still applauded and rewarded. So is it even about health? And if it is, to your point, so many things that actually go into true determinants of health and wellness are ignored. So let's not like play this game where we pretend that it's about health. It's about looking a certain way. And also, what do we even care about other people's health? I don't know. The whole thing just seems like such a charade. <laughs> Maybe I'm like really it cynical. It is a total, but, yeah. total charade. And yeah, we could go on for two hours about that. And you know, Melissa Fabello, who you've had on the show, she does a great, she has a, she's written a lot of stuff about healthism and, you know, the way she breaks it down. And, you know, and I just gave a talk a couple days ago uh, about this. And, and so a few things I want to say about that. One, our worth as human beings are not dependent is not dependent uh, on the status of our health like we don't owe health to anyone and and even that statement i think will sound radical to people right that yeah. that like people think we owe we <laughs> we owe the world our health and and that's just not true so that's one thing number 2 you know you're right people use health as a way to police other police other people it's a, a way to police bodies it's a way to say your body is unacceptable and you need to fix it um and it's just it's it and, and you're right why do you care and people don't really care that's the thing people don't truly care about another person's health it's just a way for for them to assert their um displeasure or disapproval over someone else's body. It's not really about health in 99.9% of the situations. Mm -hmm. And um, healthism is really strong. It's this idea that we are, number one, in complete and total control of our health and are responsible for it. So anything that happens to us health-wise is something we could have fixed. And oftentimes the narrative in popular culture is what you eat and how you exercise are like the main things, right? And and that you have control over it. And so that's not true 
for number one, for uh, the majority of people. And and I think you mentioned the social determinants of health, like your social environment, your physical environment. Those are things that we can't necessarily control. There are people who, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, don't have adequate and affordable access to health care, don't have um, adequate access to housing. Like those things affect people's health. And because of the systems of oppression that exists, the systems of power that exist, people don't have control over changing those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's something else that I know that you talk about this idea of how the health and wellness industry, and obviously we're speaking broadly, but I think everyone sort of knows what that means, right? That industry ignores systems of oppression that definitely impact the health of so many people that I think that it's it's almost like it's a nice narrative to think that if I just drink green smoothies and meditate that I'm never going to get cancer, that nothing's ever going to happen, like that there's almost like a false sense of control that that makes me like feel good, but like that's such a tiny unrealistic, I don't know, representation of what actual, actually the factors are that are really complicated that determine, you know, someone's wellness. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and genetics plays a big part in everything. Again, something we can't control. And I think, you know, part of it is that um, it does give us a sense of control. Like, you know, I'm doing this great thing for my Myself, I'm drinking my green juice. I'm doing my yoga and meditation, and I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those things. I don't. What I don't like is the narrative that those are the things that are going to save you and save everyone, because that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then you can't have a green juice conversation when you're talking about six dollars for eight ounces of green juice when people are making seven dollars an hour at their job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, well, I mean, and that's right. The the conversation of like access, like if yes. in, in the cultural definitions of this is what wellness looks like in this very narrow scope, like who even has access to those things that someone has deemed like, you know, the best wellness. Yes, we we make these definitions of like these narrow definitions of health and we we um, the culture defines what is healthy through images and messages it's not accessible to everyone. And at the same time, we turn around and base people's worth on their level of health. When we haven't, we live in a situation and a culture where not everyone even has access to these things that we deem are health promoting. Like, what sense does that make? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Everything's broken. Burn it down. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> no, is that not... <laughs> Um, so I know that you often use the term body justice, and I would love for you to talk about the difference that you see in that phrase versus, let's say, body acceptance or body positivity. So, yes. So body positivity, you know, that's a, it's body positivity is a word that's been a, a phrase that's been around for a while. Um, and it's a phrase that unfortunately has been sort of watered down, right? It's when you think about body positivity or when you see things in on social media and on TV about body positive, what you often will see are representations that aren't represent representations of people, but specifically women that aren't much different 
than mainstream, right? So mainstream body positivity still features and centers young-ish, conventionally attractive white women with curves, like they have fat in all the right places, right? They have, they're like the hourglass Ashley Graham um, size women. And so body positivity, the way that it is, the way that it is now, um, it doesn't really look to include everyone, right? It, it seems to be focused in one general area. And, and the other thing about body positivity, you know, fat acceptance is sort of the pioneer. That's the pioneer movement that started all of this 40 plus years ago. And not everyone knows that history. And I don't know it well either, but I do know that body positivity wasn't just born you know, five or 10 years ago, it stemmed from work that people in with marginalized identities had done for decades before this. And so body positivity, like anything else, gets co-opted and commercialized and marketed and then loses its radicalness. Um, So that's, those are my thoughts on body positivity. And, you know, body acceptance is something that I've been using also because in body acceptance and fat acceptance, because at the core, it is the acceptance of fatness as a normal part of being human, not some out, like not some um, outlier that needs to be fixed ultimately. Um, So fat acceptance and body acceptance, to me, it's the acceptance of people's bodies as is. And so body justice was a term that a friend helped me come up with because, you know, justice is like the the equal treatment of people. And we in this culture, like I mentioned, there's a hierarchy of bodies, whether it's based on size, um, gender, skin color. There's a clear hierarchy of bodies. And so, you know, my work, even though I talk a lot about dieting and diet culture and size and weight stigma and all of that stuff, I also talk about how those things um, intersect with race and gender. And my goal for my work is to bring more attention to the ways that injustices based on the bodies we're in or the bodies that we have, how those adversely affect us as individuals and as a collective, because there is a collective price that we pay when we, um, when we treat people, um, unequally simply because of their body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even within, sort of the the topic that we're talking about, about diet culture, like it's easy to just center on weight and size. And to your point that that intersects with so many other things that apply to what would be body justice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I love the most about your work is sort of the focus on body image, especially women's body image as this, like you said, collective issue, because I think it's so often seen as just a private personal struggle, which is almost hilarious because it's like almost a universal struggle, right? (laughs) But like, as I know that you have shared and talked about like now and elsewhere, this idea that like our society as a whole is worse off when, 
you know, half the population is obsessed and spending all of their energy like into trying to be smaller. That like it's not just an individual how you feel looking in the mirror issue. It's like part of something that's collective. Yeah, it's definitely a bigger issue. It's not an individual thing. And, you know, I'm learning like everyone else is. I I am no expert. I don't consider myself to be an expert. I'm constantly learning about things. And, you know, I'm along my journey and um, awakening and unraveling, I realize that, you know, body image is not just this singular, you know, I need to like, um, it's not just a singular focus on me as an individual. And it became, once I realized the collective toll that all of this takes on us and how we need to start talking about it as a collective and dealing with it um, as a collective and a community, you know, I realized that that's what, what we need to, that's, those are the conversations that need to be put front and center in body acceptance. And, um, Oftentimes, this is another thing that sort of bugs me about some body positive spaces. The focus tends to be heavily on the individual and having the individual work on their body image. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not where the work ends. There's We have to have conversations about um, weight stigma. We have to have conversations about race and gender and all of those things and how they all intersect. It's super important. And, um, and to your earlier point, when we're spending so much energy in trying to look like some ideal that was created with, without us really in mind, you know, not everybody, the ideal standard is, cannot be met by every person. So when we spend so much of our precious life energy doing that, there are tons of, there's tons of shit we aren't doing. Right. Because if you're spending all of your almost all of your waking time looking for the right diet, the right exercise routine so that you can lose weight, there are tons of things that you're not doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's it's like stealing that's your life. Real. Yeah, that's, it it's is. so real. I mean, so I guess that's like a good segue into um I would like to hear more. I know that you've shared that you had, I think you said a 25 year history with dieting. Do you remember what made you diet for the first time? Is that like a clear memory for you? So I remember the first time I knew that my body was a problem that needed to be fixed. So I was 11. So right around puberty time when, you know, (laughs) right around puberty time when you're already feeling, um, uh, weird in and about your body just because of people's comments and all that stuff. And so I can't remember my first like attempt at dieting, but I, that was, that was when I knew, oh, this body needs to be fixed. The weight that I weighed when I was 11 was a problem. And, you know, I don't know. I just knew that it was. And I think it was because of the comments that i may have been getting at school and in other places. And so that memory is very clear. Like I can clearly know, I clearly can see and remember being a little girl and it's not being a problem, like having no concept of um, my weight or body being a problem to then it was like overnight 
um, when I was 11 to, to it then being something that I needed to be focused on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I the dieting thing, <laughs> when you like look at it objectively, I actually find it to be kind of hilarious. I mean, in like for sure a sick way that in any other situation, if something my friend Isabel Fox and Duke talks about this, that like dieting doesn't work. So in any other situation where like, if you continue to go back to the drawing board for something and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and you just keep thinking, well, I'm the problem or I need to find a different diet in any other situation. If you kept trying something that didn't have, that wasn't working, you would blame the thing and not yourself. And yet we're all sort of invested in this idea that if it's not working, it's because something's wrong with me, not hang on. (laughs) Maybe this just is a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know. When I think about that, I'm like, and how I got hooked into it and every Every, I mean, at least every woman that I know at some point has been hooked into it in some way. Like that's, oh yeah, man, (laughs) it's, it is absurd, right? Because there are studies that show that long-term weight loss is not possible. People are able to keep off weight for two to five years and most people gain it back. And then there are the subset of those people who gain even more back. And so even if you don't believe in science, right, even if you don't care about clinical trials, I think all of us have our own personal anecdotal experience that says it doesn't work, right? But, but the key is that we're made to believe that there's, there's not something wrong with the diet, that there's something wrong with us. We didn't do it right. It's not the right one. We have to try another one. Our body just won't respond. Like, And the list goes on and on. So there's this this notion of blaming the body, blaming you as, as defective and not the diet. So for you, with your experience, I mean, like hearing that thinking like, okay, 25 years or, you know, whatever, give or take being in that cycle, what made you finally say like enough is enough just to step out of wait, maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe this thing is the problem. Um, it was just exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, and you know, I, I have written about how I think I've, I've always had this little voice inside that I think a lot of us do that whispers and I can remember hearing it. And the voice was like, this can't be it. Like this can't be what I'm supposed to be spending my time on. Like I, there's no way that I'm going to spend the next 40 or 50 years doing this. It's already exhausting. And, uh, you know, this conversation, this voice came up in my twenties, but I of course ignored it, came up in my thirties, ignored it again. And I think I just, once I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I could not, could not do it. And thankfully by that time, you know, social media was rampant and there were, lots of or enough groups and people to follow on social media who were um who were anti-diet or non-diet so it felt like i had somewhat of a community um and it felt easier and safer to let it go Mm -hmm. yeah so something in that that i'm really interested in hearing some some real talk about i think it's one thing to say, this doesn't serve me. Dieting doesn't work. I'm exhausted. You know, I'm ready to step away from this. And I think it's another thing to then sort of like what you were talking about before to actually unlearn 
decades of behaviors and thought patterns. Like I think there's a disconnect between, okay, I acknowledge that this doesn't work, then what, right? Like, can you share some of the specifics of either what you did or what you continue to do that have actually helped you to opt out of diet culture? Like an example that comes to mind for me is that I can't not, even if I've decided I'm not going to count calories, I'm not going to do any of these things. When you like know how many calories is in something like that knowledge is just there in your brain. And maybe that's a small, not great example, but I think there could be lots of examples like that. It's like, how do you like practically step away from that? Yeah. So I think that's a really great point to, to make. And because it's not just, you know, I'm exhausted and so I'm giving it up because you're right. You have decades of programming that remain in your head that, um, that will resurface because that's just how it is. And it's all, and, and because you still live in a diet culture, um, those old voices will come up and be reinforced by what you see around you. So, so doing the work of, um, untangling, uh, peeling back the layers, unraveling, whatever you call it is really important. And I do want to say, number one, it's hard. Number two, it can take a long ass time. Like it's not something that can happen overnight. You have to do, um, you have to try to undo decades of, uh, brainwashing and condition, social conditioning ultimately. And so, um, one of the things that helped me was to like detox my social media feed. Um, I stopped following people who were pushing, um, weight loss and all of the, you know, people who were like quote unquote fitness and wellness experts who were all about, um, all about weight loss and restricting, uh, food in various and sundry ways. So detoxing your physical environment, but social media, getting rid of magazines, um, getting off of email lists. That's what I had. One of the things I had to do. I also started to, like I said, following people who were practicing health at every size, people who were, um, non-diet, um, or anti-diet dietitians, which actually exist. Uh, I think that's a surprise to many people that they're anti-diet dietitians, um, and anti-diet wellness coaches, um, listening to podcasts. Like you almost have to do this simultaneous work of stripping away, like deprogramming and then reprogramming. Because once you get rid of all of that, once you start to get rid of the old programming, you have to replace it with something new. And so, and so that's what I did. I listened to podcasts, uh, read people's blogs. And uh, another thing that helped me and still helps me to this day is my own personal writing process. And, um, because I think that for me, writing helps me to hear my voice, like the voice that I referred to that was telling me, you know, this can't be it. Writing helps me to hear that, Melissa. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can relate to that so much. I feel like I don't understand myself or anything at all until I've written about it. (laughs) So I I completely (laughs) get that. I'm like, have I written about this? No, okay, it's not real. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I want to underscore what you're saying about the social media thing, because I think that sometimes, um, you know, a valid argument against, you know, 
social media, specifically Instagram, is this idea that it shows can show just like a perfect, curated, you know, life, which I think is is definitely true. And of course, you know, we can see, like you say, if you only follow the like Fitzbo, whatever accounts, that's mm-hmm. what you're gonna see. But I think that especially in light of how slow mainstream media is to make these changes, right? The type of things that we're talking about. The fact that if you are on social media, that you do have control over the media that you are consuming is incredibly powerful. That was a step for me too of like, okay, I need to diversify my feed in every way. And to do that consciously, because then, I mean, obviously representation matters, right? That's like mm-hmm. the more you're seeing things that are maybe different from the media you grew up on, it might seem like I thought it was a really small thing, like, oh, whatever, I'm just scrolling through Instagram, who cares what photos I see, but I've really noticed that it's more powerful than I thought that it was. Yes, yes. Though, I mean, it, and it makes sense, right? Like, that's why we're bombarded with images and messages, because because that shit works. It works. Mm-hmm. It convinces us to to pursue weight loss. It, it convinces us to buy products to fix ourselves. When in reality, there's the truth is there's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. So those images work to convince you that you do need to be fixed. You need to look like this. You're you need to get rid of your cellulite. You need to have a six pack or. You need to get rid of your back rolls and on and on and on. So, so the media you consume is really, really important. And I, I, I agree with you. I think it's hard for people to realize just how important it is because it can seem just really, um, you know, simple. Like, oh, I'm just scrolling through Instagram. These, these pictures don't have a real effect on me. And and that's not the reality. They they can have a major impact on um, on what you think about yourself and about the world. Yeah, and I think it's also I've noticed the power of the cumulative impact because it's not like you know the the damaging messages or photos and stuff that we've been exposed to. It's not like we saw those once. We've been seeing them, like you said, over and over for literally decades, right? And mm-hmm. so it's not like all of a sudden you're gonna follow some you know body acceptance activists or different people, and then like two days later everything's gonna be fine. But it's like the con- continuing to expose yourselves, whether it's social media, whether it's podcasts, whether it's you know books, different things like over and over and over that it will eventually, I mean, I've already seen this happen for me. Like it does start to crack the like subconscious beliefs. Yes, it does. I think, um, it, there's something to be said for replacing harmful images and messages with, with messages and images that, um, that promote acceptance of all people, of all bodies, of all sizes and races. Like there's something to be said about, about that. And it can have a profound, a profoundly positive impact when you replace that toxic stuff with the, um, what I like to call like life giving or nourishing, um, content. It can make a big difference. Yeah. So while we're on this subject, um, is there anyone or maybe a couple of people who you follow, who you think other people should follow too, whether it's, you know, a podcast you love or someone on Instagram, for example, anyone that sticks out to you that you would recommend people add to their feed? Yes. So, um, one of the podcasts I've, I'd love is called food psych Mm -hmm. with, um, Christy Harrison. I've been on twice and, but she has 
like amazing, amazing guests. And I've learned so much listening to her podcast. Um, people on, and so I also love, um, be nourished Hillary and Dana. Do you know them? I don't Portland. Okay. Oh, okay. Close to me. Yeah. Yeah. So they do a lot of, I mean, they're, they're great. I think they're great to follow, um, on Facebook and uh, Instagram be nourished. They do, they talk a lot about, um, weight stigma. Um, Rebecca Scritchfield, she's one of the anti-diet dietitians I spoke of. I know quite a few of, of them. Um, another podcast is Dietitians Unplugged. Um, Aaron Flores and Glennis Oyston, two anti-diet dietitians. Um, Ivy Felicia, she is a um, holistic wellness coach. Um, she's a black woman. She actually lives in the D.C. area. She and I have gotten together. Um, and she runs, a, she runs an Instagram account called, um, I think it's called Fat Women of Color. It is. Yeah, I follow that account. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. It is so good. Yeah. And she just put it to, like, I don't don't even know if it's a year old. And she has, like, 15,000 followers already. I mean, it's just really great content. Um, Yeah. I'd love it. Awesome. The the show notes of this episode are going to be fantastic. All these good people. Um, So something else that I want to talk about or would love to get your feedback on, uh, my personal experience in this isn't with food or dieting necessarily, um, because I was never super hooked into that. But um, I think about for me, getting sober, quitting drinking, that I think that there's often this cultural narrative when you're giving up, um, you know, let's say like a bad habit or something that's seen as you're trading something that's self-destructive for something better, right? If you're giving up drinking, because that's been destructive for, you know, something better. If you're giving up dieting, you know, and opting out of this sort of diet culture, that that's because it's a positive change is supposed to be all positive. And I found that I had to let myself almost like grieve all of the things that I loved about drinking. That might sound strange, but I don't know. I'm curious if that has been your personal experience or just like thoughts about just because something that isn't working and you know that you're ready to step away from it, if it's been so comfortable for so long, I don't know, there's 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 like a grief and a letting go there. And I'm I just would love to hear your thoughts about that. It's so interesting that you bring up this the um concept of grief because I was just talking about this on a call of, of a, I have a writing group and we had a call the other night and one of the women talked about how, you know, when she looks back on her years of dieting, she is sad. So she's sad because of the years lost, but also she's grieving, um, moving away from or letting go of something that was so familiar and comforting, even though it was um, ultimately harmful. You know, she's grieving the, because there's a lot of ritual in dieting and there's a lot of control that you believe that you have. And so the grieving process is real. Like it's, it's a, it's definitely part of the letting go. And, you know, um, I try to remind people that this is all part of the messiness and complexity of being human. You know, none of this stuff is linear and, um, or easy. 
it, it can be really messy. And so grief is, it may seem weird that you would grieve something that is, that you know wasn't necessarily good for you, but it was still familiar to you. So yes, the, the grief part is absolutely true. Yeah, I think about that as, I'm interested in sort of the change process in general, like why we change, why we don't change, how to close the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do. And I feel like for me personally, so much of being able to change comes back to an acceptance of exactly what you just said, that it's not a linear process and that it is messy. And just because logically I know that choice A might be better, you know, serving me than choice B doesn't mean that it's just, okay, well, I'm just going to choose choice A. Like I wish that it was like that, but it's like almost, I need to give myself permission for it to like suck and be hard and be messy and be easier some days than other days. And I don't know, we like have this narrative that, well, it's, it's good for you. So it should just be simple. And there's something wrong with you if you're having a hard time with this. And I don't think that that's ever how it really goes. No, it's just, it's not. And I think it's unrealistic to expect that. And, um, another person that I have gotten to know, um, through social media is a woman by the name of Isabel Faith Abbott. And, you know, she talks a lot about consent, but what I love about, and she's a writer and I've taken one of her courses, but what I love about what she says is that she, I feel like she gives permission for us to be human. You know, I think a lot of times we try to transcend our humanness in a variety of ways, or we try to fix it or try to go around it. And she's one who just writes about like just being with it. It's, this is, this is the experience that we're in and it doesn't always have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to look a certain way for different people. It doesn't even have to look a certain way for you at different points of your, your life. So embracing the messiness of being human has been an important part of my own journey. And it's something I'm still um, exploring. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that makes so much sense too to be exploring that in the wake of stepping away from diet culture because it seems to me that so much of what's put on a pedestal when it comes to dieting, it's like willpower and self-control and not being greedy and not being, you know, all these things that women aren't supposed to be, right? Or whatever that mm -hmm. it's like, it is, and it goes back to your point from before, like it is, it's dehumanizing. It's taking away the part, like it is messy to be human and we're not robots and it's not all the same all the time. And so, yeah, I feel like a lot of truth and comfort in what you're saying of that part of stepping away from this, you know, hierarchy that you've talked about is okay. Well, it's going to have to be messier because that's just what it looks like when you're not trying to control yourself to fit some kind of unrealistic standard. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's really important to, um, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because this might be something that I write more about. Like, I think it's so important to acknowledge the messy parts and the not always getting it right parts. And you don't have to know, you don't have to have the answer. You don't have to know what to do next. You know, it's just, um, and that, that can be very scary for people. Right. It can be very scary to think, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't have control. Um, but on the other hand, for me, it was it, it, it became comforting to see that um, this is just a part of this human experience. And to, to, to be able to, to read other people's um, accounts of their own messiness is 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 awesome. 
Yeah. Something that I've been thinking about a lot just in light of doing this podcast and having these essentially like honest conversations with no agenda, right? If you're not trying to sell something or whatever, Mm -hmm. that this at the heart of so many things I think that cause people pain is this idea that we just want to know that we're okay. And I feel like dieting with all its problems sort of until it doesn't solves that problem of like, okay, well, if I just eat this way, I'm going to be okay. If I just follow these rules, then like, then I'm okay. It's like, we're looking for something and not just through dieting, I think through a lot of ways. And like, it's only once you go to that well over and over and realize that it's not giving you what you want, like this sense of belonging or sense of whatever. But there's, I think there's something there that like, that's all we want. We want to know that we're okay. It's why it's so unbelievably freeing. You know, I think about when I read a memoir or an Instagram caption or hear someone on a podcast say what's true for them. And it's something that I've experienced too. It's like this unbelievable sense of relief. Like, okay, I'm not alone. Okay. It's not just <laughs> me, you know? And like, yes. I think there's so much of that in, in what you're saying. Like, oh, other people are messy too. Okay. It's fine. You know? And I think that's why it's important to have community or to be in community, to be around other people when you're going through this process, because you get to see that there's nothing wrong with you. Other people are experiencing the same thing and it's okay. Yeah. I remember having a a conversation with my friend Lacey, who was telling the story of when she started to um, opt out of diet culture and specifically conversations about diet and how that sort of woke her up to that that's what a lot of women bond over or how much it comes up in so many different conversations that it's like, wait, can we find something else to talk about that's not just this and how uncomfortable it was for her to just decide to not be involved in those conversations and like even losing friends over it. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 honey. The, the, (laughs) it is a way that women connect We connect over commiserating about being bad around food or commiserating about our bodies and how we need to fix them. And it can impact relationships if one of those individuals decides, I don't want to do this anymore. And some some relationships, and I've talked to a lot of women who've had these kinds of relationships with their mothers um, and with girlfriends where, you know, that's all we talk about. And then, you know, once this one person makes the declaration that this is, I don't want to talk about this, it can put an actual strain on the relationship, which is really unfortunate, but it is, it's a sad reality um, for a lot of people who decide to walk away. Yeah. Something that I'm sort of, I guess, pivoting slightly um, that I'm curious about your experience with a long history of of looking at you know what you eat and how you move your body as sort of a means to this end, what has it been like to reclaim specifically like exercise and fitness? What's that been like? <laughs> yes. So I used to be. We had didn't haven't talked about this yet, but I did fitness competitions for like four years. I don't think I knew uh, that. Okay, fitness yes. competitions meaning what? So like figure competition. Okay. So for people who don't know what figure competitions are, it's like, um, it's basically a, like a Miss America pageant with muscles. So it's those competitions where you get all lean and oiled up and spray tanned up and you're in like a sparkly bikini that you can't swim in because it's got a million rhinestones on it and you stand on stage. So I did that from 2011 to 2014. And, um, 
And so I, I have always loved exercise from being a little girl at the playground, just loving sports and, and all of that stuff. And, um, of course, diet culture, um, can have a negative effect on our relationship with exercise. And I, you know, when I was doing fitness competitions, I was in the gym five to six days a week, um, working out for like 45 to 60 minutes. And then once I stopped doing, once I stopped doing fitness competitions, the number of times, the amount of time that I spent at the gym decreased slowly over time. And, you know, I, I sort of just had a revelation not too long ago that, you know, I was still, there was still some remnant guilt about not going to the gym as much as I used to. There was still some of me doing exercises that didn't always feel good, but I did them because I thought they burned the most calories. And so, you know, this is an example of where the, diet culture programming <laughs> can hang around for a long time. And, um, and just a few months ago, I realized, you know what, I want to reclaim exercise. I want to reclaim what it means for me to, to move, what it means to me, for me to be fit. And what I decided is I'm just going to do things, um, that, feel good, but also just make me feel alive, like make me feel what it's like to be in my body. And it doesn't have to look a certain way. I don't have to do a certain number of reps if I don't want to. Um, I just want to, to become more reacquainted with my body and, and the way that it, and the way that it moves. And so this is something that I recently wrote about and I'm exploring, just reclaiming fitness for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, oh, there's so much good necessary nuance, I think just in these topics and in what you're saying, because it's really easy to think of it as like an all or nothing thing, like to get so burned out on, you know, the traditional sort of diet fitness things that then the other end of the spectrum of I'm going to give up all of this, which is absolutely a fine choice, but then to also think, wait, hang on. That's something I actually enjoy. How can I do that for myself? You know, it's, it's, you almost have to like relearn that or learn it from scratch. Cause I don't think that's something I certainly was never taught that enjoying movement for the sake of movement. Like going to the gym was something that you did if you wanted to lose weight. Like that was a hundred percent my entire relationship with like what I knew about exercise when I was growing up. Yeah. And that's the, that's unfortunately a reality for a lot of people that exercise is a way to lose weight or to prevent yourself from gaining weight. It was not really or at all associated with feeling good or just, or just moving, you know, it, it, my God, it's yeah. just it's <laughs> ah, <yeah. laughs> rage, all the things, Well, it's, which is why I think it's so funny that the marketing language, and I know that this isn't new, but I feel like I'm seeing it more, or maybe I'm just more attuned to it. The marketing language of dieting as like something that empowers you when actually, I don't know that I've ever felt less sort of powerful and in touch with myself than when I was just like following steps of what someone else said that I had to do to be okay. Who shall the 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 message of dieting or weight loss as empowerment is one that um, really burns me up, and it's you know again it's it's um 
there are a lot of diet and weight loss companies that have co-opted the use of activist language or empowerment language to sell their product. And dieting is actually one of the most disempowering things that you can do because the whole process involves you giving over control to someone else. Someone else dictates what you should eat and how you should exercise and how long you should exercise and how much you should eat. And so you aren't really empowered and somehow they're able to flip that script and tell you, this will make you feel em- empowered as a woman. And, and it's, it's very manipulative language. Um, it's just, it's so manipulative because it, it's not empowering at all. Um, but it, it uses words and images to portray, um, a, a certain weight loss plan or diet as something that will give you freedom, and again, Weight Watchers is an example of that with their, I think it's called Freestyle Program. I mean, just even the, the name that they use where they've declared, and I have no idea how this even works, they <laughs> declared that there are now 200 foods that have zero points. Like, they're, give, they're giving you freedom, but acting like you're free. Does that, do you know what I'm saying? I, I like, know, yeah, completely, completely, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, that's not how it works. And so that's one of the problems I have with empowerment. But also, we don't have, like, when you think about, um, I, and I think I wrote something about this. Um, we talked about how dieting and weight loss is primarily targeted to women and um and a lot of the empowerment language is used but when you look about when you look at the standing of women in our society and what we're actually in control of we don't really have that much power so you'd think with all of this dieting and losing weight that we would be ruling the world <laughs> at this point oh and that just ain't true so oh like, well yeah i mean how can you be ruling the world if you're spending all of your time like worried about trying to be smaller oh my god yeah that's why the whole conflation of, of empowerment with dieting is just total BS. Yeah. I mean, and sort of with that, something else that I really appreciate about your perspective is that you are and have been clear about the fact that like your work isn't necessarily, it's, you're not like criticizing women who want to lose weight. Like this idea that everyone can do whatever they want with their own bodies. And also it's necessary to critique like this system that convinces us, you know, that weight loss is necessary. Like it's less about what people choose to do with their own bodies than it is about the system in general. Absolutely. I, my goal is to, is to critique the system. It is not to, to criticize or shame people who make these choices because it it makes sense that people are making these choices. I, I set out to, um, use my words to educate or to, uh, I don't want to use the word enlighten, but maybe to just like bring to the forefront some of the things that I want people to think about these things in a different way, right? And think about to to see that we're caught up in a system that is attempting to manipulate us into um, feeling bad badly about ourselves so that we will spend a lot of our time, but especially our money on searching for improvements to our brokenness. Mm, Yeah, that's so well said. It's like taking a step back and realizing 
we, if we didn't live in a culture that was so fat phobic, then there's no scenario in which we would be dedicating so much energy and money to the pursuit of thinness. Like that exists because of the system. So then it makes sense in the system. Why? people would pursue that. And it's like, it's the system that's the problem, not the, yeah, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. So something that um, I wanted to ask you about, you posted on Instagram recently this like fantastic question of, can we create a world where all bodies are worthy? And you were sharing um, your 2018 commitment to, I think the phrasing that you used was to take a hard look at the ways that you're perpetuating systems and ideas that deny people's humanity. Can you talk mm. about what you meant by that? Yes. <clears throat> so one of the things that I have... Um, really started to think about and write about is a a reimagination. Like what does it mean to, to be in a world where we don't hate fatness, where we're not trying to fix people? What does it mean to live in a world where all bodies are worthy, where um, there's not a hierarchy where I think, cause I wrote a piece about that. And I said, I think, you know, where there's not a hierarchy, um, where white men are sitting at the top because there's clearly a hierarchy of bodies and therefore a hierarchy of worthiness. And, um, and one of the things that I've realized over my awakening over these past few years is that even though I'm someone of a marginalized identity, I'm a black woman, um, there's still a lot of privileges that I have and becoming aware of the ways in which intentionally or even unintentionally my actions and words harm other people is um something that you know i want to focus on and to to um to be very aware of the ways that i could potentially harm people and so one of the things i'll give you an example um i i like a lot of other people use very ableist language and so you know, that's the assumption that um, people who are able-bodied are normal. And um, sometimes we use phrases that are very ableist that exclude people. And we aren't aware of it because we are so accustomed to, um, we're so accustomed to that being, quote unquote, the norm or um, heteronormativity, like things like that. So I want to be able to move in this world um, with the knowledge that like there is no norm because the norm, the, the concept of normal is what I think undergirds the hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? The more normal you yeah. are, the higher you um, sit. And, and, and the people <laughs> in power get to decide that hierarchy. So, you know, it's still something I'm working through myself, but, um, I think reimagining is a, is a beautiful thing, especially for people who like to write. And it, I actually use, use this theme in one of um, the writing assignments and in, in my writing group, like reimagining a world where all bodies are worthy. And it can be a really challenging assignment, but also one that is, um, allows you to use creativity and, um, a lot of introspection. Yeah. Can you, I, I love that example that you gave and I would, uh, uh 
like to get even more specific. So like using when you said that you're being aware of ableist language that you've been using maybe unconsciously, can you give an example? Yeah, I think one of the easiest um, examples that people can um, relate to is the use of terms like insane or crazy. Um, those are considered ableist terms. So instead of those, I tend to use absurd. Um, another one that's related to what we've been talking about and what we talked about with exercise is people move their bodies differently based on their ability. And so I think we assume that everyone is able to walk into a gym and start using all of the equipment. And um, we don't take into account that that's not the case for a lot of people. And there's nothing wrong with that. So it's just being aware of... um, of not even, I don't mean, it's not even limitations of your, it's just being aware of your fellow human beings and, and being considerate and compassionate. Yeah. I think I have so many feelings about this. This could be its own conversation. Something that I have been thinking about is, I'm probably not going to be very articulate, but I guess that's the point of this podcast is just say messy things out loud that I think that there is, um, with any kind of privilege that someone has, I think at the beginning of sort of waking up to whatever that privilege is, that it's almost like a defensiveness of, well, I didn't do this on purpose, or I'm not meaning to cause harm, or like being able to take a step back and say, okay, even if you're not using the ableist example, you're not consciously trying to make somebody feel bad or be not included by using the word crazy or insane, right? Using the example that you did doesn't mean that it doesn't perpetuate harm in some way. It's like, I I work on this a lot and I have no easy answers, but being able to say, okay, just because I didn't consciously create white supremacy, for an example, doesn't mean just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean that it's not your responsibility to be part of the solution. And the only way that can happen is if you're able to sort of step back from it a little bit, that it's not whether or not you're a good or bad person, you know, that it's, I don't know if that makes sense, but no, I I think it's important to, to recognize that it's uncomfortable. And Again, that's part of being human. But if you are someone who is really a believer in uh, and an advocate for justice and having all people treated equally, then then you will do you will <laughs> you will risk the discomfort, right? It'll it's going to suck. I've been there. You've probably been there where you've said or done the wrong thing. But listen, you got to go into a corner and lick your wounds and. Um, and hold yourself accountable and apologize and promise to do better. Because a lot of us are just waking up to all of these things and um, and we don't know the right words or what to say and 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 that's okay, but that's the, the that's what the internet is for. The <laughs> internet has a lot of good information that you can quickly Google on your phone or iPad or laptop and learn and then just come back and say, you know what? I was wrong. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change these, this word in my Facebook post. I'm going to delete this post, whatever, you know, it's, um, yeah, we got to hold ourselves accountable. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be fun and, um, cheerful all the time. Yeah. I mean, and I think to underscore the point that you don't have to do something maliciously for it to be problematic. 
Yes. I think that's so important. It does not have to be intentional. Um, and oftentimes it's not because these things are so part of the culture. It's part of our behavior. It's part of how we relate to each other, that it's just ingrained in you. And so it's not intentional to use the word crazy or insane. It's not intentional to say, oh, well, all you need to do is just go for a 20 minute walk every day. Mm-hmm. Like you, right. It's, it's not, you're not trying to be malicious when you do those things, but being mindful of, um, of people who may be harmed by those things. Yeah. It's what we're asking. Yeah. I had a, a good friend call me out about this issue or I guess call me in, right? However you want to phrase it about like, I was getting too sort of individualistic and defensive about some of this stuff. And like, well, the, 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 the crazy and insane is a really good example. Cause I have type two bipolar disorder and I use those words and it doesn't bother me. So like, I feel sort mm-hmm. of like an ownership of, well, it doesn't bother me when people say crazy, but just because something doesn't bother you doesn't, necessarily make it okay. And it wasn't in this situation. This wasn't the example in which I got called out. But since this is the example that we're using, it's it, you know, basically what this friend said was, she was like, how about just listen to like what someone else's experience is of that language or that thing that you said or did. And just because you can't relate to their experience of it, because you don't have those same identities, like it doesn't make you right, you know, like, yes. did, and it, I was just like, okay, you know, like maybe just listen, like maybe just if that's just a, listen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> just, that's, a, that's great advice. Cause you know, people's experiences are valid just because you don't understand. It doesn't mean someone else's experience is not valid. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I love that so much. I tell much. myself I tell myself that all the time. And it's it can be hard. It can be hard, but well, especially because uh, going back to what we were saying about everyone wants to know that we're okay. Also, I think for the most part, everyone wants to think of themselves as a good person. And so when it's pointed out that something that you have said or done or not believed somehow is causing harm or pain, the immediate reaction is, but that's not what I mean. Like let okay, but that doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And so I've been thinking about that too. Um, Just on the internet, like sort of this culture of, you know, if someone misspeaks, how quickly they can get sort of like torn down and the like policing of other people, you make one mistake. And like, I think that can be harmful too, that it's like, you have to be willing to be called out and to change. And also we have to give people some time to do that? I don't know. No, I, 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 <laughs> I'm struggling with that myself. I don't think there's, at least I have not seen an easy answer to that. Um, I think that's complicated because, whew, I mean, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And um, so I, I get that when people see a word or a sentiment that they start to drag, which is internet lingo, drag the person. (laughs) And man, you know, and I get the anger from those people doing, I get that. Trust me, I have seen it and I get it. And, you know, I don't know if it's always um, helpful to the person being dragged, but then again, I don't know if people really care that it's being helpful. Right, right. And I'm not going to say that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, yeah, I just think that is complicated. I, that's the that's the best way I can describe that, and it's something that I've been thinking about with, um, you know, with body acceptance. And uh, I don't even know how to articulate this yet, because so that means I need to write about it. Like, 
how, you know, I mentioned that we're all at different places and some people are, are still like in the weight loss camp, but like have, they're kind of looking in over here in the anti-diet realm. So they'll still be saying stuff around weight loss in some of these groups. And then people will like swarm on them and (laughs) sort of berate them for using weight loss language. But they haven't gotten to a place yet where that's out of their vocabulary. Do you know? Oh, yeah, I, I I completely get what you're saying. I feel like the difference and I mean, all of this comes, everything I'm saying is like, this is stuff that I'm trying to work on. Like, I certainly have no answers at all. And I'm like, very imperfect. And it's like, I have tried in terms of taking criticism when it comes to this type of stuff of trying to have some separation between someone is calling me out because this thing that I said is problematic or wrong. That doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It's being able to be like, this action is problematic. This action is trash. Not that I'm trash. You know what I mean? So I think there's like a difference in how we (laughs) talk about it, you know, that it's like, shaming someone as like for who they are because and of course it's all exists on a spectrum you know like maybe there are some things that it's like yes drag them forever but I don't know that just being able to take criticism which in the past I have not been great at and so a lot of like my work this year is like ooh okay like so that's why I think I latched on to when you said like personally taking a hard look at the ways that you are perpetuating systems and ideas that deny people's humanity like often unconsciously because I'm definitely there too and Like it's being able to be like, okay, I was doing this not consciously and I'm in a change. Not, I didn't, it's not like I was a bad person. It's just, you do what you know. And yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. You do what you know. And I think as someone, you know, I talk a lot about fat acceptance and weed stigma and I'm not fat, but I have been called in, called out for centering myself and saying the wrong thing. And so it didn't feel good. It does not feel good at all, but it has not stopped me and will not stop me from doing this work, right? Like I I tell people you will mess things up, but if you genuinely care about this work, it doesn't matter, you know, when you get called in, like it's an opportunity to learn and it may not be the best call in or call out that a person can do for you. It may not feel good. It probably won't feel good. But it shouldn't stop the work. It won't stop my, it hasn't stopped me from from doing this. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to stop. I mean, I think that that's sort of an, a, a theme of what you've been sharing. This idea, again, that like being a human in the world is messy. It's funny. It's like what this podcast is all about. And like that messiness, it's, you're going to fuck up. Like it's, it's and it's, yes. you know, being able to be okay with that. And you're right. It's horribly uncomfortable. <laughs> and also necessary. I tell myself like, oh, you're okay. You're uncomfortable. Too bad. Like keep going, you know, (laughs) again, easier said than done. You know, sometimes like I need to lay on the floor and cry and like feel ashamed and also keep going and also keep going. Absolutely. So, um, before we wrap up, um, I wanted to quick ask you to talk about, um, your four week writing course, right to get free. Can you talk about what that is? Oh, yes. So I don't know if you, you know, um, Desiree Attaway. I don't. So she's one of my mentors. Yes. She's also someone to follow on Facebook. She is, um, she's a consultant and a coach and she does a lot about, she talks a lot about racism and, um, other inequalities, social, um, inequalities. And so she, um, had this awesome quote, I think it was last year 
And it was don't write to get famous. Don't write to get rich. Write to get free. And honey, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that is what I have been doing. Like I had been you know, I'd had a a writing practice that was sort of daily-ish since 2014. And I started it to, I started doing it daily to sort of unravel ideas I had around relationships and sex and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it helped me to unravel a lot of beliefs. And so I was like, that's what I have been doing. I've been writing to get free. And so I was like, I thought that I wanted to do this program that helps people um, use writing as a tool to process. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to call it Right to Get Free. And so anyway, Right to Get Free was born in September of 2017. And it's a four-week course where it's self-paced. And I give um, every week there is a topic and some reflection questions and a writing prompt. And um, you just write as much or as little as you want. You write with pen and paper or on your laptop or however. It's really, there really aren't any rules. The goal of it is for you to use writing to hear your your own true voice. Because a lot of times we have the voice of the culture running the show. Um, but I believe writing can help us to unleash our, our true voice. And so Write to Get Free was born in September of 2017. 17. Um, and we're right now, as we're recording this, we're on our third week of the second session. Um, and it's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing to connect with people over these topics and for people to, to feel this power from, from their own words. Honestly, it's just great. Yeah. So can you, because I know you're in the middle of a session right now, can you share when the next one is and um, how much it is? Yeah. So the next session is going to start on Sunday, March 11th. So the first March 11th. So the first um, prompt goes out that Sunday morning. Um, Registration is $59. And in addition to the weekly reflections and prompts, there's also, we also have two live calls where we talk about um, our process. And, you know, oftentimes that, um, conversation can go to different places. Like the call we just had this week where we talked about grieving, um, the dieting process and the thin ideal. So in the time frame when this goes up on February 15th, do you think that there'll still be spots left in case folks are interested? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. I'm interested in what, this is also a selfish question. Cause I'm like, yeah. that sounds freaking <laughs> awesome. I need to do this. Um, awesome. <laughs> So um, the way that we end these episodes are with a series of essentially like rapid fire questions. They're community questions that um, the Patreon community, the, the awesome folks who funded the show, have sort of put forth to ask all eight guests of each season answer the same set of questions. So there's seven sort of random questions if you're down to answer <laughs> seven random oh, questions. Goodness. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay. Okay. If you had a completely free afternoon next week just for you, how would you most love to spend it? Who mm-hmm. I would um, start by writing, uh, maybe for an hour, then go get a massage for an hour and a half, go to a restaurant, and because uh, I love dining by myself, go to a nice restaurant and have a great meal. Mm, I, I like eating by myself too. It's funny that you say that. Um, yeah. What feels most important to you this year? 
Um, you know, what feels most important is having more ease. Um, so my word this year is softening. Uh, I want to have more ease and softening and love in my life. And I'm not even talking about romantic love, just, um, a more connected, um, experience with myself. That's really important to me. I love that. What's one place in your town that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel, travel there, a favorite restaurant, coffee shop, museum, bookstore, park, anything? Yeah. So I live in Washington, DC. So there are tons of great places and I love to, um, when the weather is nice, I love to go and sit out, um, along the Potomac river. There are multiple places where you can just kind of bring a picnic blanket and hang out for the afternoon. Mm, That that sounds lovely. Yeah. Um, what's working really well in your life right now? Something that feels like it's easy and vibrant and flowing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Yo, that's a real answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for that. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, if I'm honest, nothing. Um, what's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path? Like uh, a fork in the road that if you would have turned left instead of right, you feel like everything would have been different. So I was just thinking about this the other day. If I had stayed with my college boyfriend, oh God, yeah, my <laughs> life would be totally different and not in a good way. So I'll just leave that there. Yeah, we'll, we'll just let that one sit. Um, <laughs> just shout out to your college boyfriend, um, <laughs> who is very likely not listening to this podcast. Um, the next question is about books. Which two or three books of any genre, any type of book, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? So uh, definitely Sister Outsider. It is a collection of essays and speeches um, from Audre Lord. I have read and reread and underlined and highlighted that book so many times. Um, it just, it, a lot of her stuff was written in the seventies and early eighties. And it, it seems like it was written yesterday. It's very mm-hmm. timely. Um, that, um, Oh, citizen by Claudia Rankin is, um, it's like a long, the whole book is a, a lyric or a poem and it's amazing. You are the second person in the last month to recommend that to me. So apparently yeah. it's time for me to read that. <laughs> yes, guys, I get it. Awesome. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? So I love questions. And um, one one question I think that it's important for all of us to ask is what can we do to make the experience of this world better for other people, not just for ourselves, but what can we do to make life better for other people? Mm, I love that question. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yes. So uh, my website, melissatoller.com, I have a contact me um, box or field and I love, love getting emails from, from new people. That's how we met. I was just going to say, hey, it works. <laughs> it worked. Oh, I love it. I will definitely put um, links to that and everything else in the show notes. Melissa, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was awesome. 
that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported, listener-funded show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Rosemary. Hi, Rosemary. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer some fun rapid-fire questions? I am. Tell me all your deep, dark secrets. All right. Yes. (laughs) Um, So my favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Um, I'm totally obsessed with the Throne of Glass series that was recommended (laughs) on your, (laughs) the the book club. I actually just finished the Queen of Shadows um, book and I was reading for like two, three hours a night and I sustained like a thumb injury from holding the book open, (laughs) like a carpal tunnel, like issue with my thumb from reading these books and I'm like I'm telling everybody about them I'm totally hooked and it's gonna be a show on Hulu called Queen of Shadows yeah I thought that they were turning it into a show yeah I heard something about a show potentially something about a movie yeah Throne of Glass was one of my favorite books from last year my girlfriend Amina who um whenever she's like you have to read this book I'm always like okay no no questions asked I'll read this book (laughs) she was the one who was like I need someone to talk about this with so can you please read it and yeah yeah, I basically like gave up my life for whatever those two weeks were to go into (laughs) them and now the final one comes out I think in the fall I think so. Is the final one the Tower of Dawn no. or is there another one? Yeah, Tower of Dawn that? came out last year. That okay. is the Tower of Dawn right after the one that you just finished? Um no, there's Empire of Storms. Okay. And okay. then I won't, I won't Tower of Dawn. Right. Yeah, okay. So um, yeah. yeah. And I think Tower of Dawn just came out because when I went to look for the Empire of Storms, the Tower of Dawn was only in hardback. Interesting. It came out um, yeah, last like towards the end of last year, like last fall. Yeah. Is there another one after Tower of Dawn? Or there is that will the... be this year. Oh my so gosh. So the final one so comes exciting. out this year. Yeah. Okay. So yes, I am, I am with you in your obsession. Everyone should read Throne of Glass for sure. It's like one of those books. I'm like, what else could be thrown in here? And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Oh my God. Just wait. Just wait. I know. That's what I, yeah, oh, it's so good. Um, what's totally one... obsessed with that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what's one thing that you feel like you're seriously kicking ass at so far in 2018? Ooh, um, I would say, um, so one of my goals is to like, you know, fit in a workout in the morning. So I've been getting up at five in the morning and, um, I like have this little trampoline that I bounce on and I do some stretching after that. I listen to real talk while I'm bouncing and I do some meditation. I've been able to like keep that going, which feels really good to just dedicate that time to myself. And I'm like, I'm doing it. <laughs> it's like, yay. That sounds incredible. So, First of all, good. the trampoline sounds really fun. Second of all, I'm yeah. always really interested in where other people listen to the podcast. Cause I'm like, I get to go running with this person. I get to be on the trampoline with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The trampoline is really good because it's, um, they actually call it rebounding. Mm-hmm. And so it's supposed to be really good on your joints and, um, similar to running where you're kind of like going up and down, um, but better for your joints. Apparently. Yeah, totally. So. Okay. Hey, that's interesting. Now I know how you spend yeah. your mornings. <laughs> so yeah, good. Um, speaking of mornings, what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? 
Um, I have uh, oatmeal, banana, and a scoop of peanut butter. Mm, I love nut butter and oatmeal. A cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. Who yeah. do you need to write a thank you note to this week? If you could give a gratitude mm. shout out to someone, who would it be? Let's see. I think I give it to my mom. Yeah. All the moms out there. I'm a mom myself now. And, you know, just kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. And it's like, yeah, thank you for all, you know, always being there. Yeah. No matter what. Cause it, it, it's tough. I mean, it's like kids go through like such emotional swings and I find it hard for myself to kind of like let go of like the last like little tantrum. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're moving on to this like fun new thing now and he's over it. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, give it up for the mom. <laughs> yeah. <indeed. laughs> and all the moms out there. Um, last question. What's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? That's a really great question. I think there's just so many things. Um, and I think it's kind of, and this is kind of going off of one of your grit and grace emails that you send out of kind of being honest with what we need and what we want and um, being able to communicate that effectively to other people. Yeah. And I think it's, it's super hard to find the space to dig down the shoulds, how I should feel and like, or what I should want and get down and kind of be able to sit in what is actually feeding your soul and, and nourishes you and, and being honest with yourself about what those things are. Yeah. The self-honesty. I mean, yeah, like you said, you mentioned you referenced the email. Clearly that's been on my mind mm-hmm. a lot lately. So yes. I yeah. Hear you. Yeah. It's one of those things that's like easier said than done. Like, shouldn't I just know exactly what I want and how I feel? But it's like being able to take a pause and go through the layers of social conditioning of, okay, well, this is what I think that I should want, or this is what I've always like told myself that I wanted, but like sort of digging into, okay, what do I honestly want? And is that the same? And then being able to, like you said, turn around and like speak that to other people. Yeah. And yes, all of that. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think what we're all trying to work on. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, we're, we're, we're not alone. Um, yep. So you're a member of our Patreon community, the Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. I decided to support the show because hearing the the honest conversation between you and your guests has helped me feel less alone. And I found that when I feel less alone, I am able to have more compassion for myself and others because I'm kind of realizing like, oh, we're all struggling and going through kind of the same things. Um, And I wanted to support the podcast so that maybe someone else out there would feel less alone and have more compassion for themselves and others. Mm, That's so well um, said. I love that, that idea of feeling less alone therefore leads to having more compassion. Yeah. Well, cause it's like, Oh wait, I'm other people are going through this too. It's okay. I'm okay. Yeah. And so I just really, that's that's my entire mission. So that warms my heart to hear that that's how you feel. (laughs) Yeah. No, I really appreciate, um, you and the guests that you have on, um, for your honesty and sharing your stories. 
Well, that's super kind. I'm really appreciative. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.